Well, it is with great joy and gratitude that we turn to your word, our great God and heavenly Father. We know that in it, through it, by means of it, you will meet us and you will speak to us. You will speak to us of your dear son, your beloved, in whom your very soul is well pleased. Delight us in him in whom you delight. Reveal yourself to us in making Christ known to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I hope we are learning together that the Gospel of Matthew is a very beautifully and deliberately shaped uh, work of art, if you will, literarily. Uh, Your first few readings, you might kind of think it's uh, just an assortment of stories and sermons that Matthew is just thinking, okay, well, I I remember another thing. Oh, and here's another thing that happened. And and here's another. Oh, wait, uh, now here's a sermon I remember. And that they don't have any particular arrangement, except we've seen they have a very deliberate arrangement. Matthew announces that to us with the first verse in which he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, David, the son of Abraham. He is the son of the father of the faithful. He is the royal Messiah, son of David. And he's shown us this um, alternating narrative and discourse. The whole book of Matthew is five discourses sandwiched between six narrative sections. The first is uh, chapters one through four, where we learn of his uh, genealogy and his birth, his preparation, his baptism, his introduction to Israel. And then in chapters five through seven, we have the first discourse the Sermon on the Mount. Then chapters 8 and 9 show how fit a king Jesus is as he shows his authority in the spiritual realm, in the supernatural realm, in the natural realm. He shows a king's majesty in all of those areas and he reaches out to those who are overlooked and distant from the people cared cared for by the celebrities and the, the leaders of the day. The one thing we haven't seen yet is... What are people making of this at any length? In fact, in the end of chapter 9, Jesus is moved by the sight of all these unshepherded sheep. And so in chapter 10, we have the second discourse, the Sermon on the Mission. And in that discourse, Jesus sends out his apostles to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So all of this outreach, all of these works, how are people responding to it? What are people making of it? Well, we get kind of an interesting juxtaposition when we remember that in chapter 10, when he instructs and sends them out on this mission, who does he tell them to go to again? He says to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel and expressly says not to do what? Don't go to Gentile, the way of the Gentiles. Don't go to any Samaritan city. All right, now in your minds, fast forward to the end of the gospel chapter 28 and verse 19. And then what does he tell the apostles? Go make disciples of who? All the nations. So what happened between don't go to the nations, only go to the house of Israel, and go to all the nations and make disciples of them? What happened between those two points? This is what happened. Chapters 11 and 12 and 13. In fact, structurally speaking, chapter 13 is really the center of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the pivotal point. 
You say, chapter 13, the one with all those parables? Yes, the one with all those parables. And what leads up to that is chapters 11 and 12, where we see, finally, how Israel responds to all of these works and all this preaching by Jesus the Messiah. And what we see is far from pretty. But it prepares us for everything, every shift and every development that happens after that. In fact, now, we're still in the introduction. Peek ahead with me. Chapter 13, and look at verses 3, and then 10 and 11 we'll start with. Verse 3 says, Jesus meets with all these uh, people in the crowds, and he told them many things in parables. Now, he's never used parables before in the Gospel of Matthew. We're accustomed to it, but not in Matthew's Gospel. This is the first time he speaks to them in parables. And uh, you see that the apostles themselves are somewhat caught uh, by surprise by this. And in fact, in the chapter, you'll see he speaks to the crowds in parables and never explains them to them. But he explains the parables to the apostles. And so now look at verse 10. And the disciples come and say to him, why are you speaking to them in parables, the crowds? In verse 11, he says, to you it has been given to know the secrets, or a better translation would be the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Now what is he talking about? This is the first mention of mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What's he been saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. It's drawn near. But here we're going to see in this chapter and after that, now the kingdom is no longer near. He never again says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Now the kingdom of heaven is distant and it's future. Why is that? Well, look at verses 13 through 15. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. I'd probably translate that, though seeing they do not see, and though hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, How you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they've closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Okay, now, this indicates this huge shift. He has at this point concluded that they just are not hearing, they are not seeing, they are not responding, and so he shifts what he does. What has happened to warrant that? That's what chapters 11 and 12 are about. In chapters 11 and 12, we see, as I call it, cycling to the crisis. In fact, let me tell you before we dig in that you see in chapters 11 and 12 three cycles of crisis. Three cycles of three, as a matter of fact. There are nine movements. So there are three cycles of three movements in chapters 11 and 12. And they're all shaped the same. The first cycle is in chapter 11, then the second and third are in chapter 12. And they're all shaped exactly the same. Here's how they're shaped. In every one of these three cycles, you have a first and then a second disappointing response to Jesus. In fact, that's what this is all about, how they're responding to Jesus. We've seen what he does, we've seen what he says, we've seen who he is, but he didn't walk around saying, here's something you might want to think about. He walked around saying, repent, 
Well, as, as I've said many times, that puts somebody on a dime. After someone says, after God says, repent, well, you either do or you don't. So the question is, did they or didn't they? Chapters 11 and 12 answer that question as to whether they repented. So we see in the three cycles, the first two movements give disappointing and increasingly hostile responses to Jesus. They start off at a disappointing and surprising note in chapter 11, but each cycle gets worse, leading to a, a crisis in the third cycle. As I say, each of the three cycles, the first two parts are a disappointing response, but in each of the three, the third part is God's response to them. And you'll see in my outline, if you just glance ahead, you'll see, and yet, three times you'll see that despite their response of heightening and increasing and intensifying rejection of Jesus, still God beckons, still God invites, still God calls any individual who will respond to come to him in faith and repentance. But, but, the program for the nation is going to shift. The program for what he's doing now is going to be, sh to be shifting. And this kingdom that he's been offering, the kingdom that's at hand that he calls them to repent in light of, that offer is not going to be made as it had been. So now let's start going through these three cycles of three with the first cycle. Uh, in chapter uh, 13, what does he say? They've closed their eyes, they've shut their ears, and they don't want to understand. Well, the first cycle we see them blind to Christ's works blind to Christ's works. In fact, the first section, verses 2 through 19, is framed by that word works, or in the ESV, deeds. He refers, Matthew refers to his deeds at the first part of it, verse 2, and then again in verse 19. Now, before we dig into that, you say what happened to verse 1. Verse 1 is kind of a pivotal verse. It shifts us from chapter 10, the Sermon on the Mission, to these two chapters. So what does verse 1 say, Matthew 11, 1? Uh, oops. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So he is a player manager. He sends them out and he goes out and does the same. He's going out preaching and teaching. Here's the thing. Never again do you read of him preaching in this gospel. There are two occurrences of referring to prophecy uh, uh, predicting preaching in the future, but he himself never does it again. Why? Preaching, the Greek word keruso, is the activity of a herald. A herald who like goes before a king, who heralds some great event or person. What's his preaching been? It's been the same thing over and over. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. But he's not going to preach that message anymore in Matthew's gospel. After these chapters, that changes. So, this notes the pivotal point in chapter 11, verse 1. Now, let's look at this first cycle, blind to Christ's work, and we begin with the surprising uncertainty of one person. And that itself is in three movements. Do you notice Matthew just keeps doing this still? This is three cycles of three uh, items. And, this, and, and many of them subdivide themselves into three. This one very obviously does. There's three movements in this first. Who's that one person? Well, it's John the Baptist. Verses 2 through 6 show us the back and forth between Jesus and John, number one. Jesus and John. Now, verse 2 is very, uh, 
I'm going to try not to say this every three minutes. I'll try to say it only once and just say it um, very emphatically. Everything we're looking at, we're going to look at more closely, and there's a whole lot more to all of this than I can show you today in one sermon. Okay, so come back and hear when we open it up, particularly this one right now, about the nature of, of doubt and how Jesus, how Jesus responds to this favored servant who expresses some doubt, some uncertainty. How does Jesus deal with that? What do we learn from it? Oh, there's a lot to learn from it. Uh, Lord willing, we'll start looking at that next week more closely. But now just notice verse 2. It is filled with significance. Now when John, John who? John the, the Southern Baptist? John the... Uh, John the Immerser, John the Baptist. When John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. Boy, there is something in every word there. What is John hearing? He's hearing these deeds of Christ. What deeds? Deeds like raising the dead. Deeds like uh, cleansing lepers. Deeds like uh, telling um, uh, storms to stop and so forth. He's hearing about that. And where is he hearing about that? In prison. He's in prison. And whose works are they? Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. So, and Matthew doesn't use that word a whole lot. So it's very significantly that he says, not simply that John's hearing the works of Jesus, but he's hearing the works, the works of, of Christ. And Christ is the Greek word for what Hebrew word? Messiah. We, we pronounce it Messiah. Same thing. Christ, Messiah, God's anointed one. In prison, John is hearing the works of, of the Messiah. Okay, well now he had spoken of Jesus. He'd been Jesus' forerunner. He knew that's who he was in, in God's program. And, and what had he preached about Jesus? Well, many things, but, but one thing he said that, that his, his winnowing fork was in his hand. That he would cleanse the chaff from his barn. What did he say in Matthew 3? He said he's going to baptize you with fire and others with the Holy Spirit. The wicked and unrepentant would be baptized with fire. Believers would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What of any of this has happened so far? None of this has happened so far. None of this has happened so far. Jesus hasn't performed one work of judgment. Not one centurion has fallen over dead at Jesus' word. Not one troop uh, or, or, or century of soldiers uh, no corrupt Jewish official has been thrown into the fires of judgment. None of this has happened so far. And believers have not yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And where's John? He's in prison. Why is he, if this is the Messiah, why is he in prison? And why aren't these works of judgments happening? Why is the kingdom of God not coming in? In fact, when you really think about it, this is a very well-placed uh, story because it raises the same question in our mind. What is happening in response to Jesus? What, what is going on? He's been announcing the kingdom. He's been showing power. So what's happening? What, what now? And that is going to be answered in the rest of these two chapters, the remainder of these two chapters. John is not an unbeliever. John is just a, a, a puzzled believer. He's a distressed believer. I don't think any of us would, would blame him for, in his situation, wondering exactly what is going on. And so he speaks to Jesus. These are the three movements. He speaks to Jesus. Jesus speaks back to John. And then Jesus pronounces a beatitude. That's verses 2 through 6. 
Are you the coming one or should we look for another, he says. And what does Jesus say? Not what you'd think. Not what you'd say. Not what I'd say either, probably. Wouldn't we first want to reassure John? Wouldn't we want to comfort him, encourage him, even express sympathy for him? But you've just got to notice Jesus does none of those things. Jesus does none of those things. What does Jesus say? Does he not, in effect, tell John's messengers to go back and tell John to remember what he already knows? And when I say it that way, does that make a connection in your mind to the last two sermons we've had here? The greatest movements in Christian growth after we're new Christians don't, as a rule, come when we learn new things. They come when we learn to believe the things we already know, to believe the truth that we already know to be true but have not yet embraced and trusted and leaned on. So Jesus doesn't tell John something new. He doesn't really appeal to his emotions. He tells him, remember what you already know. He's in prison hearing the works of the Christ. So that's what he says to John, Jesus and John, verses 2 through 6. But then, as the, as the messengers are leaving, behind John's back, as it were, we have Jesus about John in verses 7 through 15. And speaking about John, Jesus raves about him. Jesus praises him pretty literally to the heavens, does he not? And again, we have threes. He asks three questions about the crowd's expectations and gives three answers about John's reality. Who did you go out to see? Did you go out to see some pampered celebrity who bends with every uh, wind of, 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 of the current fads? Oh my, haven't we just described so many big names in, in Big Eva, in big Christian celebrity movements. But he says, is that what you went out to see in John? John's not that. John is not clothed in soft clothes. He's not a celebrity. He doesn't blow with every wind, every, every wind of uh, the current public's demands. But in verses 9 and 10, more than a prophet, he says. This is the one sent out before Messiah as his messenger. And he says in verse 11, there's nobody among those born of women greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow, is that instructive. You'll hear in many Christian churches people preaching that the, the kingdom of God came with Jesus, that we're now in the kingdom of God. But if the kingdom of God had come, surely John would be in it, wouldn't he? But what does Jesus say here very clearly? John is not in the kingdom of God because it hasn't come yet. It has not yet come. Those in the kingdom of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and regenerated, joined to the body of Christ, those are greater than John, great as he is. And then verses 12 and 13, the kingdom of heaven has been dealt with violently by violent men. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John is that pivotal point between the old covenant and the coming of the new covenant. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Verse 14, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, if only they had, but that's the issue. That's the question, isn't it? Will they hear? So we've got the surprising uncertainty of one person and how Jesus responds to it. First Jesus and John, verses 2 through 6. Then Jesus about John. And now, thirdly, John, Jesus, and that generation, number 3. Now I want you to notice the word generation occurs once here. And I'll just give you a peek that the word generation occurs four times at the end of chapter 12. That's actually very significant. So he 
and John present a united outreach to that generation. And what is that generation's response to either? Rejection. They won't have either of them. He says uh, that uh, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and you said, well, he's crazy. And then I came eating and drinking, and you said, well, he's a wino, and he hangs around with the wrong people. Uh, it's like kitty games, he says, and then he gives, uh, he asks one question in verse 16, and then gives a two-part answer, first figurative and literal. Uh, this figurative answer is, you're like kids. You say, all right, you know, we'll play, we'll play dance music. No, we don't want to dance. All right, we'll play funeral music. No, we won't want to play funeral either. Well, you just don't want to play then. I guess you just don't want to play. And that's indeed the case. John came approaching them one way. Jesus came approaching them another way. Another way. And they had neither of either. They didn't accept the ministry or respond to the call to repent from either one. And that is that generation. Now that generation, that's a much broader term than just the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees. It takes in all of those in general living at that time. So the surprising uncertainty of one person and then we escalate in letter B to the sinful unrepentance of many people in verses 20 through 24. Now here is the outcome of that ministry in chapter 10. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now there's works twice in the first section and there's dunames in the second section, his miracles, his mighty works. But look at this again. The cities, now there's going to be three, so this alludes to three cities here, because they did not repent. Three cities there, and then he singles out two cities in verses 21 through 22, and then one city in verses 23 and 24. So he takes them apart bit by bit. None of them repents. Well, there's the question there, and there's the issue. The sermon has been, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not, here's something interesting to think about, or note this on your calendar, but repent. And did they? This verse says, no. No, despite what? Again, verse 1 says, he went out to preach and teach. Chapter 10 says his apostles went out to preach and teach. And verse 20 of chapter 11 says his mighty works were done in these. They heard preaching and they saw the miraculous powers of the kingdom of God and their response was not to repent. Now let me note this, though I must, I must hasten on. Uh, it doesn't say that they, 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 they threw a, a riot against them, that they responded with violence or vileness. It's not anything they did. The problem is what they didn't do. What didn't they do? They didn't repent. People think, I'm not such a bad person. I haven't done this or done that. Well, let me ask you if you've done this. Did you repent? Did you believe in God's gospel? Did you believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? It doesn't really matter what you did if you haven't done that. And so these cities were not called just to feel good about themselves or enjoy the show or appreciate a good sermon They're called to repent. And that's the one thing they did not do. And so Jesus says, it's going to go worse for you. And then he singles out some of the most horrible cities in Old Testament narratives. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, cities of the plain. It'll go better for them than it did for you. They would have repented. But you don't repent. There's an interesting note about God's sovereign plan. God did not do what would have brought them to repentance there. But he did them in this age, and they did not repent. Uh, 
So, John, Jesus, in that generation. Secondly, letter B, the sinful unrepentance of many people is what we just looked at. But then, despite John's disappointing response and despite their sinful unrepentance, and yet there is a sovereign invitation to all people in verses 25 through 30. First, Jesus adores his Father. We have adoration, we have revelation, we have invitation. Three parts, once again. Adoration, verses 25 and 26. He adores his Father equally for hiding the truth from the proud and for revealing the truth to babes. He adores God's sovereign decision and decrees of grace. And then he puts the center of revelation, verse 27, in himself. All things have been handed over to him by his Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So one's spiritual condition is... uh, uh, hangs dependent on God's sovereign decisions of grace. Yet then the next item is not so figure out whether you're one of the wise or one of the children. It's not so figure out which group you're in. No, that's not our business to figure out what God decreed in eternity past. Our business is with this invitation that he gives in verses 28 through 30 and will we respond or not? And if we do respond, we will give credit and praise and glory to God alone. And if we don't respond, we will bear the blame in our sin alone. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see how striking that invitation is in this location? We've just seen John's Uh, uh, surprising uncertainty. And then we've seen that these cities that he preached to and did his miracles in, that they all didn't repent. And, And the terrible judgment that's coming to them. And yet, and yet, and yet, this call, this invitation goes out to all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, with the guarantee that if we come to him, we'll find his yoke to be easy and his burden to be light. Now, with that in our minds, chapter 12 shows us the uh, hard yoke and the heavy burden of the religion of his day. What do you mean by an easy yoke and a light burden? Well, let me show you by reminding you of how heavy the burden of the human traditions laid on the law was. And that's just where chapter 12 is. And that sets us up to this crisis and why Jesus will be rejected by the people who should have been leading the procession of repentance and of accepting him as Messiah. So we've seen in the first cycle uh, people blind to Christ's works no matter what he did. They don't see who he is and repent in response. Now in the second cycle, we see people who are deaf to God's word. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. People who are deaf to God's word, and that's the religious leaders of that day. It starts bad with a merciless objection to Jesus' disciples eating on the Sabbath. 
They're going through the, the uh, grain fields and his sab- on the Sabbath. And by the way, the word Sabbath has never occurred in Matthew before. But now eight, eight times, eight times in verses 1 through 12. So this is all about what they've done with the Sabbath. That's the focus here. And it's only going to occur a few more times in the gospel. So this is all about what they've done with God's Sabbath. So they're hungry and they start just plucking as they walk and rolling them and eating, eating the grains of the Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees look and they say, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He's not doing it himself, but they are. And the Pharisees object to how, how can you let them eat on the Sabbath? How can you let them pluck wheat and eat it on the Sabbath? And he says to them, have you not read? Oh, that is, he says to these experts in the law, have you not read? Have you ever cracked a Bible open, in effect? It's like somebody says in a a big pastor of a huge megachurch, did you ever even crack open a Bible? And that's what he says to them. Have you not even read what David did? And when he and his men, when they, he was hungry and they ate the bread of the presence. Now here's the point, verse, uh, and verse 5 also, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and they're guiltless? But he says in verse 7, and if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. What is he talking about there? If you had, not, if you had learned what this means. Oh, do you remember back in chapter 9? Kind of the opposite of this happened? What happens here? The Pharisees go to Jesus and complain about his disciples. What happened in chapter 9? Matthew had repented and threw a party for, Je- for his friends to, to, to meet Jesus. And, and what happens in chapter 9? Well, the Pharisees complain to the disciples about Jesus there. It's, it's reversed. Why, why is he doing what he's doing? And Jesus answered and he gives them a homework assignment. Do you remember that now? Go look up this verse, he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He designed them a homework assignment. And here he says, you didn't do your homework. Now this is just very instructive in itself. I've thought this more times over the years when I've seen somebody hear a word from God and just not respond and go on as if nothing had happened. And I know that in that person's mind, the the event is just not an event. But I've also thought at the same time, God's not going to forget. God never forgets when we hear his word. God never forgets, and he counts it, and he keeps record of it. Because every time we hear his word, we're supposed to respond to it. And it matters to God. God takes his word very seriously, even if we don't. So here's a group of people, Jesus said, you go look this verse up and learn from it. Oh, they were too proud. They had no need to do that. Well, they heard him just fine. They knew what he was saying just fine, but they had no need, no interest, no intention. And here the bill comes due because they have not learned about mercy. Here's people people hungry and and they get something to eat. And they just see it as a violation of their man-made improvement on God's Sabbath law, which was not about not eating on the Sabbath. So uh, God's judgment fell on them for not responding to his word. But I don't want us to miss the thing he said that is so little and so huge they eat the bread of the presence. Uh, the priests work in the temple on the Sabbath. They, they don't get Sabbath off. <laughs> the priests, they work on the Sabbath, but that's okay because they're serving in the temple. What does he say in verse 6? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What? What's the temple? The temple is the symbolic presentation of what? The presence of, of God himself. 
That's where God is worshipped. And he says something greater than that is there? What's he talking about? Himself. He is greater than the temple. Because he really is the presence of God. Because he is God incarnate. He's not a picture of the presence of God as the temple is. He's the real presence of God. And they're dictating law to him and faulting him for not keeping the law right, which he wrote. So instead of falling before him in repentance and humility, they lecture him and judge him and reject him. So he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Yes, indeed. He created it. He knows what it means. Uh, It's they who are not learning. So this is a merciless objection because they didn't learn the the lesson. A merciless objection to eating on the Sabbath. And now we ramp up once again, we intensify in the second cycle as, with a malicious opposition to him healing on the Sabbath. A merciless objection, they're just complaining, intensifies to a malicious opposition, verses 9 through 14. So from there he goes to a synagogue, still on the Sabbath then. There's a man with a, a paralyzed hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now look at this so that they might what? Thank you. Accuse him. So that they might accuse him. Now you've heard the saying, every, every question deserves an answer. Uh, we're going to have to rethink that as we go through these sections. Because that question was not an honest question. It was not a request for information. It wasn't a question to learn anything. What was the motivation to that question? They just wanted more evidence against Jesus. They wanted more. They'd already decided what they thought about Jesus. They they weren't looking to gather information about Jesus. They were looking to gather accusations about Jesus. Have you ever met anyone like that? A few hundred thousand times. This is what people who ask questions often are doing. They don't. It's not an honest question. You can tell by the fact that when you answer that question, there's just another question. That question wasn't a question. It was just a dodge. Deal with that, then you get the next dodge. Well, this is not an honest question. They're just looking for some more reasons to hate Jesus. And, well, he goes on and he, he, he says uh, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath and tells the man to stretch out his hand. And he heals him. And their response, of course, is to humble themselves and rethink their whole way of looking at things. No, not at all. Verse 14, they went out and pursued their already arrived on conclusion. They went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Ah, So in the first cycle, it's opposition, but here they want destruction. They want to destroy him. Uh, They they want to do away with him. Uh, This is telling us then, what Israel is doing with the outreach and the ministry of the Messiah. Its leaders, its self-appointed experts in the law, now are wanting to destroy the Messiah. But here comes our second, and yet. And yet, despite the malice and opposition of men, we read this in verses um, 15 through 21. He withdrew himself rather than just smiting them all dead, which he could have done. And and this is the thing that troubled John. Why didn't he do that? Well, he didn't. And here's why he didn't do it. Verse 17, to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. You know, that is just worth camping on right there. That is what God thinks of his son. 
how, how much should we think of his son? This is what the father makes of his son. How much more should he mean to us? And contrast that with what they're doing with his son. They're looking to destroy him. But God says, uh, my servant, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, my servant whom I have chosen. Well, he says, I'll put my spirit upon him. Now, that's very important. Just make a mental note of that. We'll come back to that in a second. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. His ministry, he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world in this first coming. He didn't come in to blast and destroy all of his enemies. Uh, he came to reach out and appeal and proclaim God's kingdom and to accomplish God's purposes on the cross. But they rejected him. Uh, but this was part of God's plan. He was there uh, with the Spirit's anointing to preach the gospel and then eventually to bring out uh, to bring out justice. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, there is both a peak as to the future here, we saw at the end of the gospel, make disciples of all the nations, but also a slap in the face to that generation, right? Because it should have been Israel to hope in his name. They should have been the first, right? They should have been the first to repent and believe in him, but they don't, and therefore turns to the Gentiles. So that's the second and yet, and yet, and brings us to the third cycle. Deserted by God's Spirit. Chapter 12, verses 22 through 50. We've just re read the prophecy saying that the Messiah would have God's Spirit resting on him. Well, that's going to come up again in this section. Deserted by God's Spirit is that generation. So first, we see in letter A, leaders condemned for blaspheming the Spirit. Now this is an awful section, verses 22 through 27. And what you see here is just this thing that started off in their sullen resentment to Christ and their building need. The more of Christ is revealed, the more explanations they have to come up with and the more uh, opposition they have to build until it comes to a crescendo here. And they've just floated this idea that, well, maybe he's throwing out uh, 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 demons by the prince of the demons earlier. It wasn't, it's, like, it's like it wasn't their official position, but here it has hardened into their official position. This is what they make of Jesus. So well, let's look at this together. Uh, verse 22. A demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. This is what he did. <laughs> Nothing was ever too hard for Jesus. And all the people were amazed, and, they, said, and they, they said, can this be the son of David? Now the Pharisees hear this. So in other words, people are looking at this obviously messianic deed and wondering whether this could be the Messiah. And they see, well, we've got two choices. We can either reconsider, humble ourselves, and repent. <laughs> like we're going to do that. So seriously, what are we going to do? Well, they've got to shut this down because people are starting to consider that Christ might be the Messiah. So he's presented some really impressive words and deeds. We've got to come up with some explanation that, that will take care of all that, that, that will deal with all that, that will make people not 
be attracted or, or puzzled or, or provoked to thought by any of the things that Jesus... Well, let's see. You know, let's put our thinking caps on and what, what wonderful, deep explanation can we come up with for what, uh, for what Jesus is doing. So... Um, The Pharisees heard it, verse 24, and they said it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons, that this man casts out demons. I mean, mean, what do you say? But, But I've seen this again and again. I've seen this again and again. Somebody first hears the gospel and doesn't want it. And hears more and and just hardens opposition, and and just more and more doubles down, triples down, quadruples down, and finally comes to just absolute stupidity. Uh, But 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 this is what I do instead of believe in Jesus. This is what I hide behind instead of admitting the truth about Jesus. You look at this and you just think, how can they, I mean, come on. And yet this is their brilliant explanation about how Jesus cast out demons. He did it by the power of Satan. And so Jesus, because he's God, knows their thoughts. I mean, that's just kind of a funny little note there in verse 25. Because they're dead wrong about him, he knows what they're thinking. And his response is so mild at first. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Oh, there you go. There goes their brilliant, their, their brilliant explanation. And so are they going to drop it now? No, that's, that's their best case. That's their best answer. They're not going to drop it. He says in verse 26, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you, come upon you, pardon me. And that, of course, is exactly what's happened. Because what Jesus is doing is he's showing that the powers of the kingdom of God are in him. And the way the kingdom of God is at hand is he's at hand. It's present in him. And so it is by that power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he casts out demons. There it is again, the Spirit. So the prophecy in Isaiah said the Spirit would rest on him. Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God, I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come, come upon you, or better, it's, it's, it's present with you in me. How can someone plunder a strong man's house without tying the strong man? And that's who he is. He's the strong man who ties Satan and can plunder his house. But then here we come to the the dire and deadly reality of it. Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And Mark adds expressly, he said that because they were saying he does it by the prince of the demons. In other words, they were saying that the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry was really the power of an unclean spirit, of the prince of the unclean spirits. It was really the power of Satan. So they looked at the very presence and working of God and attributed it to the devil. Where, how, do you, how do you come back from that? Where do you go from there? Well, better do some more miracles, right? But we've seen what they do with miracles. Better preach some more, right? We've seen what they do with preaching. So what, what, what does that leave? Well, you see, this is where that generation has come. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus wants to, needs to go on to say, 
verses 33 and following, make a tree good and its fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad. Yeah, look at my miracles, which are the presence of the kingdom of God in me, and say that it's really Satan doing that. That's just absolute insanity. Uh, make up your mind, are they good works or not? Um, and then he goes on to say, he calls them a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And uh, look at this, verses 36 and 37. This is very heavy. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Well, this, this little thing they've come up with, this, this brilliant idea that Jesus cast out demons by the prince of the demons, maybe they just said that in desperation. Maybe they just did that to try to shut people up for now until they could think up something better. But that counted, Jesus said. That thing you said, that counted. God heard that. I've told you in the past that I see this local bumper sticker for a Christian radio station. It says, God is listening. And I always think, well, that should fill people with terror. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't it? God's listening. Well, that's absolutely true. God hears every word. And he heard this. And they were going to need to answer for those words. And there is no answer for those words, you see. They're desperate. And, and what a difference it is between what Jesus did and, and what modern fakes do who claim to be performing miracles. Back then, what, what, do you notice what they didn't do? They didn't say he's not really doing miracles. They, even they couldn't do that. They, they couldn't say, well, they're not really miracles or they weren't really demon-possessed or that guy wasn't really dead. You know, they couldn't do that. It was, it was obvious. Everybody knew it. Today, it's just the opposite. All the ministries that claim to be working miracles, they can't find one that everyone will recognize as a genuine miracle. Jesus' ministry was completely different. And it didn't matter. You see, it didn't matter. Because what we need to, is not to be persuaded into the kingdom of heaven. We need to repent. We need to repent. That was Jesus' message. So, the leaders are condemned for blaspheming the Spirit. The generation, then, for, therefore, is abandoned to unclean spirits. Letter B. The generation is abandoned to unclean spirits. Verses 38 through 45. So their conclusion is, ah, yes, Jesus does all these miracles by the power of Satan. And so uh, they say, oh, do some more miracles for us in verse 38. And uh, Jesus says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. His time of reaching out by the miracles that proclaim the nearness of the kingdom is done with. And he's not going to give them more miracles to attribute to Satan, you see? And he says it's an evil and adulterous generation. And that word, I told you, occurred once at the beginning of chapter 11, and now it occurs four times at the end of chapter 12. And the point of it is, this is showing how that generation rejected the Messiah. Yes, there were individuals who believed. Yes, there were individuals who were saved and added to his number. But the generation on the whole rejected Jesus. So they would just get us the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and would rise again. And he says, he has said, one greater than the temple was there. Now he says, one greater than Jonah is here. 
And in verse 42, he says, one greater than Solomon is here. A pagan queen came from far away to hear Solomon's wisdom, and you're right here with your own Messiah, and you won't listen. A greater than Solomon is here. So, what are the consequences of this? Well, the Spirit of God is there, resting on Jesus, doing these wonders. What happens when they reject the Spirit of God? He explains that in verses 43 and following. When the unclean spirit's gone out, it looks through waterless places for rest, and it says, I'll go back to my house that I came out of. And verse 44, it finds that house empty, swept, and put in order. So it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. The last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now I tell you, that puzzled me for the longest time. That seems like I, don't get, I didn't get how that conclusion went with this parable, with, the, with the, the figure. It doesn't say the spirit is, he doesn't say the spirit is cast out. He simply says the spirit leaves. But when he comes back, he finds there's nobody holding this house against him. The house has actually been tidied up. So he just invites his nasty friends and parties down in that house because it has no defense. And now it's worse. And Jesus says that's, that's the case of this generation. Oh, well, tie it through everything we've been reading in these two chapters. And that's what he's saying. The Spirit of God was present in him. And they said, that's the Spirit of Satan. And so that just leaves them absolutely open and the spiritual realm abhors a vacuum just like the natural realm, and that vacuum will suck in worse and worse uh, deeds of the, of the real evil one since they are rejecting the Son of God. And so that's that generation. There's no point in multiplying evidence to a hardened heart. They are bereft and they are abandoned by God's Spirit. And yet, one more, and yet, in verses 46 through 50. Any person welcomed to Jesus' true family. Verses 46 through 50. And yet, any person welcomed to Jesus' true family. Let me open that up for you. He is preaching to the people. And where are his mothers and brother, mother and brothers? Are they with the people hearing his words? No. They're on the outside. Matthew says that again and again. They stood outside. And again, they stood outside, we read in verse 47. So they're standing outside of this gathering. They're not part of this gathering. And other Gospels give us some more information. They think he's lost his senses. They want to call him aside so they can lecture him and get him right. So they're not part of his followers either. And how does that fit in here? Look at what he says and let me show you what the point is. They want him to leave his teaching and his ministry so that they can talk sense to him. And he does not do that. <laughs> and he looks around in verse 48 and says, Who's my brother and my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, uh, my brother and sister and mother. So what's he saying here? What's, what's the point of that in this setting? His own nation has rejected him. His kinsmen according to the flesh. He is physically related to all these people. He's related to them by being an Israelite. His physical DNA is connected to their physical DNA, and yet that generation has rejected him. So it's seen in microcosm in his immediate family, who are his immediate blood, but they're not listening to his word either. They're wanting to talk sense to him. 
And so what he's saying then is what matters now is not whether you're related to me, either by being an Israelite or being in my immediate human family. What matters is how you respond to the word of God. And as we will see, as the gospel goes on, not just Israel, he's already a couple of times expressed marvel at the faith of the Gentile, and uh, the, the Gentile centurion, and said he hadn't found faith like that in Israel. But now it's going to become official. <laughs> now it's going to become official as the nation, the generation, rejects him. And he will, after his resurrection, send out his apostles to the nations. Anyone who listens to the word of God and does it is his mother, his brother, his sister. It's not going to be a matter of fleshly relationship, but of spiritual relationship. And there is the invitation. Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, you hear the word of God, believe the word of God, and you're Jesus' sister and brother and mother. You are related to him in a way that goes beyond fleshly relations. And that's chapters 11 and 12 leading up to the mysteries of the kingdom in chapter 13. Three cycles of three showing us cycling towards a crisis, Israel's crisis, the crisis of the rejection of the Messiah. And so uh, you look at back, and you, back at them and you say, oh, they are so dumb. I, I just, how can people be so dumb? How can they see and see? How can they hear and hear and not respond? But when you hear yourself saying that, do you think, well, I mean, just let me ask, have you ever heard the word of God and not responded like you should have? Have you ever seen the grace of God and the hand of God and not responded as you should have? I, I know what that is. And as I've said before, uh, Christian growth is usually not learning new things. It's learning to believe what you've already heard, what you've already been taught, but believing it to be true. And so, yeah, they, they haven't uh, responded. Okay, well, Christian friend, dare we reject God's word? Is there some area where we've been hearing God speak to us through his word, but we've been la-da-da-da-da, pretending that we didn't hear it and that we don't know what it means and we don't know what we need to do about it? Is there some area like that? Ooh, then let's take correction, humble ourselves and respond. But let me, let me be a, a good friend to you who are not Christians. Perhaps you've come in and, and you've heard the gospel yet again. You've heard it before. You've never responded. You know that you haven't repented. You know you haven't believed in Jesus. You know that you don't really have a relationship with Jesus. And, and I'm very concerned that you might hear this and you might think, oh, I'm so relieved by all those and yet sections because what that tells me is that I'm going to have more chances. That means that I'm going to have more chances. That, that yeah, I don't feel like it today, like I've never felt like it before, but, but I know I'm going to get another chance. And what I want to say to you, what I want to be a good friend to you and say to you, this is your and yet. Right now, this is the and yet. You're not guaranteed any more and yets. You've already had a bunch of and yets. Every time you've heard Christ preached, it's been an and yet. And you're not promised another moment on this world, let alone another opportunity to trust in Christ. So I just, I urge you with all urgency, if you have not made peace with God on his terms by repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus, well, I urge you with everything in me, do that. Waste no further time. Uh, presume no longer on God's grace and long-suffering. Uh, this is your and yet. So that said, we're going to take a few moments then to reflect on this. And is there something you need to 
to write down that you need to see to, some action you need to take in your own life in responding to God's word. Here's a few moments to think about that and then I will lead us in prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for yet one more time to hear you speak to us through your word. And I would indeed pray for any who has not come to peace with you through Christ, that the Spirit of God will open those eyes, those ears, and lead that person to repent savingly. And for all of us who know the the areas in our lives where we need to bow the knee to your word and accept your truth and grow, then give us the grace and strength to see to those, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and we